enjoy all those Christmas hymns. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 2. I want to read just a few verses. We looked at a lot of Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and I briefly mentioned this story, but I want to read a few verses to you about really one of the uh, very sad story that is associated with Christmas. Of course, you know, Christmas is just like 100% positive, you know. You've got the birth of Jesus Christ. You've got God sending His Son to the earth. You have the story of the shepherds and the angels. You have the story of the wise men who later bring the gifts to Jesus. And there's just a whole lot of positive in this story. And even though this story that we're looking at, as I mentioned this morning, this is something that happened a couple of years after the birth of Christ. It is kind of a part of the Christmas story and Jesus Christ coming to this earth. And I want us to I want us to look at this and recognize this story tonight. I think it's important that we do because it kind of helps us, I think, understand just why this Christmas story is so important. But look at verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. So this horrible story, I mean, just imagine what that must have been like. You know, imagine, uh, you know, if the king puts out this decree, you know, we're killing all the male children under two years old. If you had a young ch- a child, a boy that was under two years old, that would have been uh, a devastating thing. This is a very tragic story. How many there were in that time? I know Bethlehem probably wasn't a huge town. I mean, I doubt it's like in the hundreds or anything like that. But listen, even if it's only ten, I mean, what a tragic thing. What a brutal thing this was for the king to just declare something like this. And we see in the, in the story, it mentions the prophecy that Jeremiah gave, and it mentions Rachel weeping for her children. And that's the title of the message tonight, Rachel weeping for her children. Because while we see all these great prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming, which when you go back and you look at all those prophecies, I mean, these are all things that would really excite you. You know, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's exciting right there. You know, though there's a lot of those prophecies were something that would be very motivational. We have this one in here that we see that is associated with Christ's first coming <clears throat> that's kind of a scary one that talks about uh, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. Go back to Jeremiah 31. Let's look at um, let's look at that in the Old Testament and see how it says it there. It says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rahul, or which is Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And that's one of those prophecies you see in the Old Testament too that's just kind of vague. You know, what does that mean exactly? And there are some prophecies, it's almost like they were meant to be noticed after the fact. To just show this was God's will, it was God's plan. But there's some things I think we need to learn from this terrible story that I think will be a help. And first thing we need to understand about how terrible the story is, 
is first off, this isn't the first time we see a story like this in the Bible. Can anybody remember another time where we see something similar in the Bible, a decree going out, kill the male children under two years old? When did that happen before? In Moses, in the story of Moses. Go back to Exodus chapter 1, and I think this is interesting. Now, obviously, what took place here in Exodus was much larger scale. And, you know, here it was just, you know, all the male children to and under. Here in Exodus, I mean, they're wanting to kill all the male children that are born. I mean, when they're born, kill them. I mean, you think about, you know, women, my wife, she's great with child now. And it's getting close to that time where she's going to deliver that baby and she's going to go through all that pain. And what does the Bible teach? When it talks about women when they get, when they go into labor, I mean, they have that great pain, that great travail, but you know, it's like after they give that birth, they forget about that sorrow because of the joy that they brought this child into the world. And that's, and that's literally how it is when babies are born. I mean, women go from, you know, yelling and screaming in pain to, you know, laughing and crying in happiness. Seconds later, it's really weird, you know. But uh, I've seen that multiple times, and it is because they're just so excited about that baby. Well, imagine, and many women have gone through this. Many women have gone through this, where they've gone through the travail of having a child, only for it to die and be stillborn. And what a horrible thing that is when that happens. That is always a tragic thing. And so, just imagine though, going through this, having a healthy baby, and then they're going to go and kill it on purpose. I mean, this is a wicked thing that took place. And in Exodus 1.15, says, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiphrah, and the other uh, Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men's children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and waxed very greatly. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that He made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born, ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So thank God there were some people here who defied the laws that their nation had uh, you know, declared or decreed and didn't follow. But now, Pharaoh, he's telling everybody, hey, this is the law. When you have a child, you have to throw it into the river. And of course, we know the story. You have, uh, you know, uh, what were their names? Amram, Jacobed, and they did not do it. They didn't follow. They had they had Moses. They did not obey the law of the land. Amen. You know, they did not follow that wicked law, and but in a sense they kind of did because they did put Moses in the river, didn't they? But with an ark. All right. They made, she made that ark, and you all know the story how that went down. But isn't it interesting how this time? When Pharaoh does this decree, it's right around the time when Moses is going to be born, who is going to be the man that God uses to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. God was going to use Moses. And that's interesting because turn over to Acts chapter 3 and verse 22. There are a lot of similarities that we can see in the life of Moses 
and Jesus. In fact, there was a prophecy also in the Old Testament that's quoted here in Acts 3, verse 22. It says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever ye shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. So right here we see that it was prophesied that God was going to raise up another prophet like unto Moses talking about Jesus Christ. Imagine, I mean, that's a compliment for Moses right there. God said, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses. And it was Jesus. Being compared to Jesus is a really good thing. And Moses was somebody that got, uh, you know, he was compared to Jesus. Jesus is actually compared to Moses. Hey, this prophet is going to come one of these days. He's going to be one like unto Moses. And I think it's interesting that they kind of had a similar beginning. And so, um, you know, look at what it says in, uh, so go to, back to Genesis 35. Or Genesis 35, we haven't went there yet. So this prophecy, it wasn't, or this thing, this event that happened, this isn't the first time something like this happened. Years before it had happened, when somebody special was about to be born, you know why? Because I think Satan knew what was coming, and Satan wanted to stop Moses from being born and from uh, you know delivering the children of Israel. And you know what? Satan wanted to stop Jesus from being born. Satan wanted to stop Jesus from living that perfect life and being the payment for sin. And so this event, this is something that was prophesied. We looked at Jeremiah 31. And you notice it mentioned, you know, Rachel weeping for her children. Why did it bring up Rachel? Anybody ever thought about that? You know, why Rachel? Because this is the children of Israel, right? You know, Rachel wasn't the only mother. Why didn't it say, you know, Leah weeping for her children? You know, why didn't it say Bilhah or uh, you know, Zilpha weeping for her children? Why did it say Rachel weeping for her children? Well, I think there's a very good reason for that. And this is important too because there are so many prophecies that were fulfilled at the birth of Christ. I mean, it is, that's why it's amazing that, you know, the, those who call themselves Jews today say they believe the Old Testament without believing in Jesus Christ because the prophecies are so specific, some of them, and Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of them. And I don't know how they can ignore these things unless they have been blinded. You know, that, I guess that would be one way. But why Rachel? Well, look, in Genesis 35, verse 19, I believe this is why Rachel is the one mentioned. I think this was God's way of saying where this was going to take place. It says in Genesis 35, 19, And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. So Bethlehem is where Rachel was buried when she was died. And Bethlehem, I mean, it's noted a few times in the Bible that that's where Rachel was buried. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 10, in verse 1, it says, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found. And lo, thy father hath left the care of the asses and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? So right there we see that you know Bethlehem, it was a place where Rachel's sepulcher was. We see it was on the border of Benjamin. And Benjamin it was one of Rachel's son, wasn't it? 
And so I believe the real reason that God used Rachel here in this story is because of the fact that Rachel was the mother of Benjamin, and but ultimately that area where this took place, it was a part of their territory where Rachel was buried, the border of where Benjamin was from, and I believe it was God's way of prophesying where this was going to happen is what's going on. God's prophesying exactly where this tragic event is going to take place. And so look at what it says in Micah 5.2. We have another very specific prophecy here. One that even they, that they figured out in Herod's day. It says in Micah 5.2, But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. So right there, a crystal clear prophecy that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But read Micah 5.2 and then read Jeremiah 31.35 and you wouldn't be able to tell those are you know, the same, uh, are related to each other, would you? You look at Micah 5.2, it looks exciting. You go to Jeremiah 31 and it looks like something tragic. And, and, and it was. And so, the thing is, you know, so Bethlehem, it was specifically the place but also in Jeremiah 31.35, now I'm going somewhere with all this. I said it's important that we understand all these things. It mentions Ramah. All right, look at that verse again. Jeremiah 31.35 it says, "A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, rail weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not." Uh, and Ramah is another city that's actually north of Jerusalem. If you look on a map, and I don't know how many miles this is roughly, but if you look on a map of Israel, you'll have Bethlehem south of Jerusalem, and then you have Jerusalem, and then above there you have Ramah. So I personally believe what this is saying right here when it's saying a voice is heard in Ramah, it's just an expression basically saying that, hey, I mean, the, the cry is going to be so great. This is going to be so tragic. They are going to hear the weeping in Ramah. You know, it's just a way of just saying, this is bad to the point people are going to be wailing and hollering. This is going to be such a sad event. So this is an extremely tragic event that was prophesied back in the Old Testament. And the Bible's telling us, the Bible prophesied where it was going to be. And the, and the prophecy, when you look at it, it's pretty clear, you know, what it's about. You know, she's weeping for her children because they are not, meaning they're dead. So there was a clear prophecy about many dead children, specifically in Bethlehem, that was going to come. And sure enough, we see that happen in, as, a, as kind of a part of the Christmas story, even though it's a, w a little while later. So when you look at that, you know, you think of the Christmas story. I'm not trying to put a damper or anything negative on it, but you all understand that is a part of the story, isn't it? That is a part of the story. We like to focus on just all the good parts, the positive stuff, and that's fine. I'm not saying, you know, we got to, you know, find a time of mourning during the Christmas story, but I show you this because, you know, you think, you know, why would something so horrible happen? Why would God allow something like that to happen? Well, turn back to Genesis Chapter 3, there is a very good reason for this horrible, tragic event that took place. Because of the fact that, and you all know the story, 
God made this God made this world. He made it good. God made man. He put him in a garden. He put him in a paradise. But you know what? Man sinned. Man fell. Man fell as a result of Satan. Satan, he comes along and he tempts Eve, gets her to eat the fruit. She gives to she gives to her husband. He eats, and according to the word of God, death came into the world by sin. And death and sin came by man. It wasn't Satan that brought sin into the world. It was man that brought sin into the world. It was man that sinned. It was man that transgressed God's law. And man and Adam and Eve, they literally sent the entire human race, I mean they plummeted all of them, into death and destruction. And look what it says in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. Because I mean really this is when you know, people like to talk, you know, we got the dispensationalists that like to talk about all the dispensations that are out there. But I personally believe if you want to talk about dispensations, I think the dispensation that we're in, it started here in Genesis 3.15. Right? People like to talk about the age of grace. They say that we are now in the age of grace, or some will say the church age. But the truth is, you know, there is the age of grace, I believe, started right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, immediately after man falls, we see God. Of course, He's upset. God confronts them about their sins. He tells them about what they've done. He told them, He had told them the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And He pronounces the curses on them. He tells man, hey, you're going to have to you know, work from the sweat of your brow. The ground's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. You're going to have things working against you. He told the woman, I'm going to greatly multiply your sorrow in conception. God put the woman in subjection to her husband as a result of these things. But you know what? While God pronounced all these curses on him, God also said in Genesis 3.15, after He gets to the serpent, He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And I believe that is the first prophecy that we see of the Messiah. I, I believe that right away, as soon as man fell, we see that God, way back there in the very beginning in Genesis, what did God do? He promised a seed of a woman that was going to bruise the head of Satan. God prophesied way back then, hey, Someone is going to come. And listen, this is why I don't believe in dispensations. This is why I don't believe in an age of grace and things like that. Because of the simple fact that when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. When God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, if you want to try to work around it, you want to try to see if you, you know, you've watched enough television shows that, you know, you know, it's not your destiny. You know, you fulfill your own destiny. You can do your own thing. Listen, you're crazy. You're not going to get around God's plan. And when God gave a promise, when God gives a promise, it is as good as done. And that's why we believe people were able to be saved in the Old Testament. That's why we believe that even in the Old Testament, when people who were believers, when they died, we believe that they went to heaven. You say, how could they have gone to heaven when the blood hadn't been shed yet? Well, you know what? They had something just as good. They had the promise of the blood being shed. And just because they had the promise, God didn't need to sit up in heaven saying, no, I gotta wait until the blood's actually shed. I gotta let you go to hell, you know, until Jesus comes and actually goes through with it just in case Satan gets the victory. Okay? When God says something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. But you know what? 
we have, there is a philosophy out there today. There's this attitude out there today that says, you know, you can do your own thing. You can go around the will of God. Hey, if you're a man, you can be a woman. If you're a woman, you can be a man. You know, you fulfill your own destiny. You choose your own path. You do this. You can do that. You know, you, you decide what's right and wrong. You know, you decide what truth is. You know, it's what you are in your heart. It's what you feel in your heart. All these cliches that you hear out there. That stuff is from the devil. It, listen, that kind of thing comes from the devil. It is the devil that's always trying to change things. It was the devil who did not like his position in heaven and he wanted a higher position. He wanted the position of Jesus Christ. He said, I, I will be like the Most High. It was the devil. He was the first person not satisfied. It was the devil, the first person who comes along and says, you know what? I want something for myself that is outside the will of God and set out to get it. And that very satanic attitude that came from Satan himself, we see in the world today and we see throughout the Bible, the devil did everything he could in his power to try to stop God from fulfilling his promise. And this horrible, tragic story that we see in the book of Matthew, is Satan trying to stop God's promise? At this point here in Matthew chapter 2, I believe Satan was well aware of what was going on. I think word had gotten to Satan about this child that had been born, where the, that the angels showed up and talked to the shepherds. We talked about this morning how the shepherds, after they saw you know, the, the things that they saw, they went and they're telling everybody about it, but it's clear that story did not take hold. It's clear that not everybody believed that story and accepted it, but I believe the devil found out about it. I believe the devil knew. And we see how Satan, he used Herod, a wicked king. And I'm probably going to be preaching a sermon here real soon about the Herods. Some interesting things about all the different Herods in the Bible. And they, let me tell you, they were a wicked, wicked people. And, but, and here you have King Herod a man in a high place of great power working with Satan himself doing everything he can to stop Jesus Christ. To physically stop Him. And when we read that story, I think it's important when we look at the Christmas story that we remember all that Satan did to try to stop it because that tells us just how important it was. When you see how desperate he was and how far he went to try to stop the Messiah from being born, that ought to get our attention a little bit. And so while most of the world had no clue what was going on, Satan was well aware of what was going on. I think Satan remembered that prophecy in Genesis 3.15. You don't think Satan wasn't paying attention to those prophecies in Isaiah and in Micah and in Jeremiah? You know he had to be paying attention to those things. And we've got to remember, there is nothing that Satan won't do to stop people from getting saved. One of the biggest mistakes people make about the devil is, you know, we, sometimes we just forget about him, but a lot of times we underestimate him. We don't, we don't realize there is no level that he will not stoop to. We've got to remember that, you know, I, I'm not trying to take blame away from people. Herod was a wicked man. But do you not think Satan didn't have a part in getting Herod to do what he did? We're crazy if we don't think the wicked stuff going on in this world today that Satan's not behind it. That there are not demonic forces at work. It, the Bible tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness 
in high places. If you don't think that what we see going on in Washington, if you think it's just men and women that we're fighting with, you're crazy. These people are demonic. There are devils at work. And you see the laws that they're passing. You see the things that they're doing. And let me tell you, these are desperate attempts to stop prophecies from being fulfilled. And we see that back at Christ's first coming, there was no low that Satan wouldn't stoop to. For I mean, for them to pass a law just saying, kill all the male children under two years old. That's about as low as it gets right there. But we also see in this story though that it failed, didn't it? It, it absolutely failed. And Satan, But Satan does. He uses evil people to do his evil work. And you know what? We need to remember this because Jesus Christ is coming again, isn't He? We believe Jesus Christ is coming back. And does anybody think that Satan, because he lost then, has just given up? I mean, does anybody think that Satan's like, well, you know what? I learned my lesson going against God. You know, I failed at the first coming. I'm just going to quit trying. You know what? I think he's going to try even harder to stop some of these prophecies of his second coming. You know, you look at the story of Armageddon. We know how Armageddon ends. And you know Satan's read that story too. But it's like, I believe Satan is dumb enough to think, you know what? I'll fulfill my own destiny. I choose for me. All the cliches. And he thinks that he is actually going to win in that battle. But you know what? He's not going to win. He's going to fail. He's going to lose. And we should not be surprised at the wickedness that we see going on in our world today. We should not be shocked at some of these decisions that our leaders are making today. I believe there are demonic forces at work. I believe they're trying to destroy the church. They're trying to destroy God's people. They're trying to get as much wickedness as they can in this world because they do. They want to stop what is to come. They know, I believe the devil knows just as well as we do, that the coming of Christ is getting soon. And... You know, he, thank God he's going to fail. And go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Because when we look at this story here in Matthew, this is, this is a tragic story. It's not necessarily what we like to focus on when we look at the Christmas story, but it's important that we do because this story, it is, this is a horrible story showing just how desperate Satan was to stop this event from taking place. But thank God it failed. Thank God, you know, God ends up warning Joseph and Joseph ends up escaping to Egypt. And this is just my opinion on this too, because it was prophesied too in the Old Testament out of Egypt have I called my son. It was prophesied that Jesus would go to Egypt. Well, have you ever thought about this? Because you know, God does everything for a reason. There's a purpose for everything. These wise men, they come along and they bring these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Well, what's one thing we can safe, it's safe to assume about Joseph? He probably was not a rich man. Okay? He couldn't even get a room. You know, if he'd had enough money, he could have got a room that night. You know he was poor. You know he didn't have enough money. But you know what? Now, he's got, you know, there's a hit out on his son, his stepson, or adopted son, whatever you want to call it. And so you know what he's got to do? He's now got to flee. He's got he's needs to travel. How is he going to pay for that? I believe the gifts of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I think that's what took care 
of Christ while he was in Egypt. You know what I think that was that is a picture of? I think that's just God taking care of his son. God providing for his son. That's my son down there. He's he's in trouble. He's got a financial need. I'm going to protect him. And I believe one of the reasons God sent those wise men was so they could finance him fleeing to Egypt and take care of him. And because God saw it coming the whole time. And that's what's so neat about God who declares the end from the beginning. God, God has been able to put a plan together that where Satan can't win because God knows every move Satan's going to make. And God's already got something in place to stop Satan. Whatever Satan's planning on doing in the tribulation, you know, and in Armageddon, whatever, whatever Satan thinks he's got up his sleeve, you know, God's already got it figured out. He already knows what's going to happen. And God's, God's already got it taken care of. And so the thing is, this is exciting because we see that Satan lost. That Satan failed. And look what it says in Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Right here, this is a, this verse is a reminder of why Satan was so desperate. Satan had been 100% successful in getting man to sin. Had he not? He got Adam and Eve to sin, and because he just got them to sin, death passed upon all men for that all had sinned. Satan's thinking, I've got the victory. These people are never going to be over me. They are going to go to the same hell that God made for me and for my angels. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus Christ who comes along and it says that He has the power. Because of what He did, He had the power to destroy Him. That had the power of death. Satan knows. And Satan knew that if Jesus Christ succeeded and grown up and living a perfect life, that he would be destroyed one day. Satan knows that one of these days he's going to be cast into a lake of fire. And Jesus did that and he did it as a man. He didn't take on him the nature of angels. He took on him the seed of Abraham. He lived the life of a man just like Adam could have. He was a, he was a man just like you and I but he was the son of God and because of that because he never sinned because he never he uh, you know Satan never got him to fail in any area because he got victory over sin and death he is able to be that faithful high priest he is able to make reconciliation for the sins of the people and right there that is why this is exciting when you see that that one story, it's a tragic story, but it's just a reminder of how desperate Satan was. And it's a reminder too that in the end, while it was a tragic story, Jesus ended up winning. And, it's, and you know, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that went on in Jesus' life. We don't know, you know, from the age of two, we have the one story from when he was 12. But then after that, we don't know anything about Jesus until 
he was 30 years old, and we see he gets baptized, and then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. We don't see the devil trying anything, as far as we know about, until Jesus was 30 years old, until after he's baptized. And I don't, and I don't know how much of this the devil saw, if I may speculate here for a minute. Alright? You know, if, if I may speculate. Because when Satan came to him in the wilderness and it said, if thou be the Son of God, was Satan really in doubt? about who he was. You know, because you know, John the Baptist had been preaching, hey, there was going to be one that was going to come after him, and it was told John the Baptist that that one who he was looking for was one that the Holy Spirit was going to descend upon, and we see after the baptism, that's exactly what happened, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove and lighted upon him. There's a voice from heaven, God himself saying, "This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased." Right, now, did Satan see that? I have no idea. Did Satan hear about that? Probably. I personally think that when Satan went to Jesus, I think he knew full well who he was. So you know what he did? Satan just was pulling out all of his old tricks. He used the lust of the flesh. If thou be the Son of God, make this stone into bread. You know, He used the uh, lust of the eyes. Hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this earth if you'll bow down. And worship me. He used the pride of life. He basically tried to get him on a dare. You know, hey, if you're really the Son of God, you can jump from here and the angels will bear thee up. You know what? While I think Satan probably knew who he was, well, I think he was just trying to do, he was using all his tricks that had worked on literally every human being that ever existed. He used every one of them on Jesus and failed. And then what does the Bible say after that? The devil departed from him. But we know, and then later, he comes along again. He enters into Judas Iscariot, betraying him, thinking he's going to kill him. And then even after that, it's like he tried to keep him dead. He just failed. He failed. He failed. And so while we see these tragic stories that are associated with the Christmas story, understand that in the end, while terrible tragedies happened, victory was won by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did what needed to be done. And because of that, he is able to be that faithful high priest. He is able to reconcile God in Himself. When Jesus Christ, you know, with Him living the life that He did, Him dying the way He did, rising again, He made a way of hope for the rest of us. And so there is, there is the, the story, the prophecy of Rachel weeping for her children. That is a reminder to us of just how desperate was how desperate Satan was to stop this event. And you know what? It ought to cause us to just thank God that Jesus Christ got the victory. And let me tell you something. When you look at these stories and you see all that God did, you know, it's amazing that anybody would try boasting in their salvation at all. I mean, Jesus did it all on the cross, but then we even see God the Father working with Christ and helping take care of Him protect them. I mean, just God gets the glory for everything, folks. And we ought to be glorifying God this time of year. We ought to be like the angels that said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We get the good end of everything on this. This was Jesus Christ was God's gift to the world and thank God for what He did. So, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much.
for sending Your Son. Lord, we thank You for this story. Lord, it's a, we looked at a sad story tonight associated with the birth, Lord, but we thank You that in that tragedy, Lord, Satan failed again. And Lord, You succeeded. And we just thank You for giving us the victory. We're thankful, Lord, that even though we always fail, we know that You have succeeded and that we can be imputed Your righteousness if we'll just believe on You. And so, Lord, I pray You help us to remember that this time of year and we'll all just rejoice and be thankful for all You have done. In Your name we pray.